You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. going on guys welcome to another episode of peer pleasure with dewey halpas on equal vision records and sound talent media i am dewey your host with the most bringing you more great content week after week this week we have ryan clark from demon hunter this dude is prolific he's a prolific artist he is a prolific musician he's been all over the scene for a long long time i'm surprised it's taken this long to get this one going but um yeah, I just I have so much going all the time that if it doesn't hit me right at the right time, it gets overlooked or or passed over just because there's so much going on. But I'm really glad we got to sit down and have this conversation. Ryan's a very interesting guy, and and it was cool to pick his brain for a while um, on artwork and music and business. Um, he's got so many irons in the fire, and he's made a career out of creating, which is amazing. He's designed probably some of your favorite album covers. Um, they've got a book coming out with that, uh, all the favorite album covers they've done, and yeah, they're doing some stripped-down music. It's just really cool, and he's a great dude, so I appreciate him coming on, and and uh, I think you guys are going to like this. So let's get some business out of the way real quick, and we'll jump right in. So peerpleasurepodcast.com is the website. Peerpleasurepod at gmail.com is the email if you want to get in touch with me, um, questions, comments, anything like that, guest ideas shoot it to me there. Uh, if you want to tell someone about the show, definitely send them to the website. has all the episodes, all the merch, everything else is on there. And uh, yeah, I just it's the numbers just keep growing, guys. It's crazy to watch every week. It's insane. Um, but also join the Facebook group. The Peer Pleasure Podcast Inner Circle Facebook group is uh, live and available now. And you get all the access to who's coming up, who I just talked to, um, you know, all the insider stuff that doesn't usually get shown until the episode comes out. Um, and then on top of that, we have the premium. So the premium pleasure is peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm that has access to all the video footage of the interviews. So if you guys like watching video more than listening on audio, all those are on there. Uh, you have the Peer Pleasure Passcast, which is a separate podcast I started doing I think there's 12 episodes in there now um, where myself and another podcaster or a fan of the show 
jump on for an episode deep diving into their favorite episode of the show. Um, and it's cool. You get to hear the story behind how the guest was, you know, uh, procured, how the episode went, how it was received, where it happened, how it happened, all that stuff. Um, just a deeper dive kind of footnote thing that I thought would be cool. Um, you'll also get access to the ad free feed. As you'll notice, we have a lot more ads on the show. As the show's growing, we get a lot more advertisers, which definitely helps the show grow, uh, but also can be annoying for some people. So there's also an option for an ad free feed of the podcast. So if that's something you think you'd enjoy, go to peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm and join the premium. Also, with the premium, you get to see the video of what I just did that day, that day, instead of waiting the month or so for it to come out. So just another thing for those people that are supporting the podcast financially that uh, I'm able to do with my limited time and make it cool. So if you've already joined the Peer Pleasure Premium, thank you so much. It really is helping out. Um, and those of you who haven't, definitely think about it and see if it fits into your your lifestyle and your budget. Um Anyways, so I don't want to take up any more of your time with this intro. This is a great conversation. I want to dive right into it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ryan Clark from Demon Hunter. my friend good excellent excellent you hear me okay yeah uh what about you can you hear me yeah yeah you sound good cool. right Great. on all right well what dude welcome to the program dude i've i've i was stoked to do this i was texting with downey earlier this morning uh letting him know you were coming on um nice he's a buddy of mine and of course a longtime buddy of yours <laughs> yep yeah manager extraordinaire uh yeah but yeah this is good this is good. Awesome. Yeah, excited to do it. Awesome. I uh I also uh pre-ordered the book this morning. I had no idea that was coming oh, out. I found that and I was like, oh my God, I gotta have this. So uh cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're getting, we're almost there. It's been, uh, it's sort of expanded in scope week after week. Cause we realized we're probably, you know, we're just going to do this thing once, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of an album art centric book, this is going to be our one shot. So the more we thought about it, the more we were like, well, we can't, we can't do it without leaving, you know, without doing this, can't leave this out. Um, like, yeah, it's just one of those things that we started out really simple mm-hmm. and then expanded and expanded, but <laughs> for, all for the best. It just means that the timeline is, you know, kind of pushed out a little bit, but yeah. it's, everyone's going to be, it's, it'll be better for it for sure. That's good, man. I'm stoked to see it. And, and, uh, I've been a fan of your work for a long time. It's funny that, uh, I mean, just how much you've had your hands in this scene and so many scenes, but this scene specifically through, through artwork, even more so than music, like just you've, you've had your hands in everything. Yeah. And it's really, and there's a lot that we, you know, there's a lot we're not showing. There's a lot that's not, you know, on the website. There's a lot that's not on my album covers website. It's just like, that's just the great thing the problem. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff on the cutting floor and there's a lot of stuff that I just don't like enough yeah. to, to post. So, yeah. wow. I, I think it's, my guess is it's somewhere in the realm of four or 500 albums that I've done um, over the, over 20 years. But I, I need to try to make an actual count at some point. Yeah. Of everything. Like not just the ones you're super yeah. proud of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there's got to be some. There's got to be some stinkers in there, right? It just happens. Of course. Yeah. There's more stinkers than there, than not. Yeah. I love that. I love that you can admit that too. And 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 uh, you know, some people believe everything they do is magic, but oh. you know, it's not always there. I can count the ones I really like on one hand. You know. Wow. <laughs> I can't do that. I do take a few hands for me to do that with what you've done, but uh, I like that you keep it real. That's awesome. Um, well, tell me, tell me where you come from, man. I don't know a whole lot about you as a person, um, yeah. which is why I was stoked to do this. When Alec hit me up, I was like, yeah, let's do this thing. And full disclosure, I sent the Zoom link to him like five times because I was juggling all these episodes and then I was taking my son to watch these trains that he likes to see and I'm like on my phone doing the Zoom thing. And I uh-huh. sent it to him, thought I did it wrong, changed the date, but we had already changed the date. I asked him to change the date and I put uh-huh. the wrong one. Anyways, we went back and forth and I was like, dude, okay, I'm going to cool out for a second. I'll send you the link in like five minutes. It'll be correct. It was hilarious. It was complete chaos. And that's yeah, never yeah. happened before. But uh, when he when he hit me up about having you on, I was stoked. So uh, cool. awesome. yeah, because I've heard you on, I've heard... You've been on the labeled podcast a couple times, I think, with Matt I Carter, so. who's a buddy. And then uh yeah. I think that's the first time I actually heard you speak and like, you know, talking about the stuff. But sure, yeah. um where do you come from? Are you from Seattle originally? No, I moved here in two thousand. Um June of two thousand. That was my right before my twenty first birthday. Prior to that, I lived in Northern California, just a, a, a small suburb outside of Sacramento called Elk Grove. My folks still live there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there from age 10 to 21. So that was sort of formative years, teenage years. Um, prior to that, I was in Bend, Oregon before most people really knew what Bend was before it became like a vacation destination. Um, it was a really small town in the, in the eighties. Um, and so I lived there from 80 to 90. Um, and I was actually born in Whittier, which is 
Southern California. Mm-hmm. But we, I think we only lived there for like six months before moving to Bend. So I've always been a West Coast. So I've kind of been up and down the West Coast. Um, and yeah, Seattle in 2000, Seattle proper when I, when I moved here in the city in Capitol Hill. Um, and then slowly started kind of moving out further and further. Um, first house that I, that I bought, obviously the housing market up here is nuts and always has been. So mm-hmm. had to, had to move out by virtue of that. Um, so I did that in like Oh five moved out just a little bit outside the city, still had a Seattle address, but, um, it was out by the airport. And then about seven years ago, took the jump about 45 minutes outside the city. So now I'm out in the country, got five acres, can't see any neighbors and it's, uh, it's the best. Oh my God. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. 45 yeah. minutes out. Where are you at? Where are you at? Like by Kent or like, uh, yeah, it's actually, Kent's really close. So I'm in Maple Valley, Maple Valley. Okay. Yeah. My folks live in Rome. My folks did live in Renton. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, so our first place was in Renton or Skyway. Yeah. Um, but Renton, John, our bass player is in Renton, but it's, uh-huh. he's at the tip of Renton, like where it kind of cuts off. So he's actually super close to me. I didn't, I never thought it would be Renton, but, um, yeah, he's in, he's in Renton and he's only like five minutes away. So got it. Yeah. It, Renton, Renton is, uh, Renton's an interesting town. <laughs> I don't it like is. to spend much time there, but uh, it's exploding. I I I feel I grew up on a small island in Alaska, so I I mean those those years from like birth to ten years old are so awesome in a small town where you can oh, still yeah. do things, you can explore, you can play, you can take your bike somewhere. Like, yep. uh, Bend is is gorgeous, and That's I've been there a few times. Me. But yeah, so yeah. so you would be so is it just you and your brother, or do you have like more brothers and sisters? It is just me and my brother. He's four okay. years older. Okay. Um, so we, you know, we went through phases where we were tight, not later in life, obviously got tighter and, and the age gap sort of dwindled. Um, but yeah, Bend was absolutely that for us. We had a little bit of land. We had a creek running through our property. Our dad was a woodworker. So he would build us forts, tree houses. You know, it was just like running around racing, like little wood boats in the creek and, and going swimming and, um, we had a riding lawnmower, you know, it's just like all that sort of stuff. Like country living was awesome. It was yeah. really cool. Yeah. Is that where, is that where, uh, your creativity kind of sparked from was back? I mean, just making things yourself or, or working with your dad, like building things or watching him do it. Like that creative kind of, uh, I guess you could say DIY kind of spirit. Sure. I mean, I, you know, the, the root of the artistic bug, was just ingrained in my brother and I by virtue of our grandfather. Um, and I feel like that would have happened regardless of I mean, whether or not we even knew him because mm-hmm. um, it was just innate for both of us. It's all we ever wanted to do is draw. Our parents put us into all sorts of extracurricular classes and bought us art books. Every Christmas was just like colored pencils and pens and pads, um, art classes, you know, you name it. That's all we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, our grandpa, was an illustrator. He worked at NASA for 28 years. Um, he illustrated, he, had, he was really multidisciplinary. He would do, you know, really detailed instruction manuals, but then he would do like, you know, hyper-realistic airbrush moon landing sort of imagery and stuff like that. So he would do everything, uh, textbooks. Um, he would do uh, political cartoons for newspapers. Um, but yeah, most of his professional life was spent at 
Ames Research Center for NASA. Um, and that was back before, I mean, it's, it's still kind of the, the case. It's government work, essentially. So mm-hmm. you don't really get credited for that work. So um, we know most of what he did while he was there. And we have a lot of it. Whether or not we're supposed to, I don't know. But mm-hmm. back then, you know, everyone just kind of assumed Carl Sagan did everything. You know, <laughs> it's like the only name that people ascribe to that era and, and with NASA. But um, yeah, he was he was one of a few people that were that were um, sort of silent artists that did incredible work, but were never really credited for it. So he supported a family of six or seven um, doing that for most of his life, and so that was. The idea of the starving artist wasn't really a real thing for my brother and I, because we knew that it was possible through my grandpa that you could actually make a living doing it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's where like the, the raw bug of just art came from. But in moving to Elk Grove in 1990, you know, I was 10 going to 11. Those years where you're trying to fit in, you're trying to like establish an identity um, living in what was at the time a brand new suburb. Mm-hmm. Um, every house was a cookie cutter. Every corner was the same corner. You know, it's just like the, the paint on the houses was the only difference, like every corner, you know? And so it was every couple of weeks, there'd be like a new subdivision coming, you know, like, and I would just kind of accumulate friends through school and stuff. That was just our, our own little suburby world, but it was, it was, obviously lacking a lot of character and a lot of like, um, creative luster, you know? So we had to sort of build our own world that we wanted to see. And so I started getting into skateboarding. Skateboarding was sort of the catalyst for everything. Um, skateboarding art, you know, I, was obsessed with all of the, all of the artwork from all the 80s skateboard stuff, all the stuff that VC Johnson was doing and all the stuff that Jim Phillips studio was doing, uh, names that I didn't know at the time, but stuff I was obsessed with the Mike McGill stuff, the Pearl Willander stuff, um, Rob Roscoff, all that stuff. So super obsessed on an art front and then getting into Thrasher magazine and Transworld and, um, Heckler, which was a local magazine that got some pretty good notoriety, getting obsessed with those things while skating, getting obsessed with the, the videos, the, the plan B, you know, uh, virtual reality video and the H street video and the real team video. My brother was snowboarding at the time. So it was Mac dog productions videos, these videos that got you really stoked to go out and, and skate or snowboard, but also had like these soundtracks with punk rock and hardcore and classic rock and hip hop Bay area stuff, Delta funky homo sapien and all this, like just opening our minds to everything, you know, and then Thrasher magazine would have, ads for sympathy for the record industry and like all these kind of small indie cool looking labels that had subversive looking artwork. Um, and it was just one thing after another of sort of piling on this subculture, this counterculture, and the obsession was just growing like every day. So I would meet friends through skateboarding that would show me Pennywise and Bad Religion, Lagwagon, no effects, no use for a name, and then find out sort of that sort of snowballs. We're watching these videos and you find out about new bands, you buy the record, or you get a hold of the record somehow, you start reading the thanks lists, you find new bands. Like it was that that era where it was like you would dig um, for for little pieces of knowledge, information. And so that just started an obsession with music in general. And my skateboarding slowly sort of phased out when I was probably 15 or 16. Um, and, 
I was just gung ho going for music. I just wanted to be in a band. So I learned how to play guitar at 14. I probably haven't really progressed since then, just enough to <laughs> write, you know? Um, I've always been stoked to have guys in the band that can do it better than me. So yeah, um, I just formed a band of friends. We were all sort of like had the same mentality. We were like, let's just, let's all go, go off and learn our, our instruments. We'll take lessons, you know? And then in six months, we'll get, get back together and we'll start a band. That's pretty much what we did. And it took, you know, a few different forms until it was the right, the right blend um, of like, okay, this is a real, a real thing. Mm-hmm. And the, the first like real, real thing was focal point. Um, and that's uh, a guy that my brother had been playing some music with named Danny. He was about four years older than the rest of us had all this pro gear. He had a house we could record in. Get a drum kit set up. So it was like that allowed us to really kind of do it for real. Mm-hmm. But then the rest of the band was like <clears throat> a church friend, my next door neighbor, a kid who was in every class with me in junior high. You know, it was just, it was just buddies and we just all like made it happen. Um, and Focal Point was pretty short lived. We did a record. Um, I mean, that, that, that whole thing was a whirlwind in and of itself because it's like we were playing music for like a year and then all of a sudden we have like a record deal and you know I was 16 my parents were signing the contract for me and going to LA and recording a record in a real studio with a legit producer just insane to do at that age and then as soon as we got out of high school we were off on the road and touring all the way to you know the northeast Mm -hmm. and back and then you know I think reality sort of set in when we got back and things start you know people's motivation started to kind of dwindle and uh my brother right around then had started a, another band called training for utopia with a friend a couple of friends in the, in the neighborhood and um their singer was getting ready to move back to los angeles where he was from um and they had gained so much momentum by that point it was like well we don't want to stop doing this so mm. i could sort of see the writing on the wall with focal point I had always wanted to be a singer and focal point. I'd written all the lyrics and done a lot of backup vocals and, and sort of helped our singer with a lot of things. So I, I knew that was something I wanted to do. <clears throat> so he, that I was, it was kind of a shoe in scenario. Um, so I started kind of picked up where Rob, their previous singer left off and we did training for utopia for a number of years, a couple of EPs, couple of full lengths um, that kind of led us up to 2000 my brother was getting heavily more heavily into design, trying to look for work like legitimate design work. He had always uh, done that. He'd done that quite a, quite a bit before I had started doing that. So he was, um, you know, he would work on our band stuff like focal point. He helped lay that out. Um, and then training for utopia, he would design all that stuff. And then he's by virtue of doing those things, he started getting hired by solid state and tooth and nail to do other things, living sacrifice, spitfire embodiment, Zayo. Um, and so he was doing that stuff in the late nineties where I was just still doing just solely focusing on music, working at a record store. Um, I loved art still, but I didn't really have an outlet for it other than I was doing a lot of graffiti. Um, so I did, you know, trains and freeways and all that kind of stuff for a number of years and a lot of friends, bedrooms too, um, throughout high school. So that was really my outlet for art. Um, and then he got a job offer in Seattle in 1999 and with a friend, actually, the two of them 
got kind of the simultaneous offer because they were just, it was the dot-com boom of Seattle. Like they were just, everyone was hiring everyone. It was like, everyone's going to retire early. We're all going to drive Land Rovers into like the sunset, you know? (laughs) So it's like, (laughs) they moved there um, in in 2000. And my brother, before they left, was just like, do you want to come with us? And I was at, at the time I was just working at the record store. Training for Utopia was sort of also fizzled out by that point. So we were sort of between bands and I loved it at the record store, but it was one of those places I could just see myself sort of decaying at, you Mm -hmm. know, because it was so cushy and, you know, so I knew I, from visiting Seattle, I knew that it was someplace that really sort of uh, thrived on the arts and it was someplace that I could um, really, if I wanted to really take some artistic endeavor to the next level, Mm -hmm. whether that was visual stuff or music, I knew that Seattle was a better place for it than Sacramento. And so I decided to go with them on a whim. We moved in 2000 and um, I sort of had some random jobs for about a year. And then I knew nothing about how to design properly, but my buddy that I had met after moving to Seattle, Greg was working in the tooth and nail art department designing and they just lost their second you know, they were always a two person outfit. They've just lost their other person. And he's like, you should, you know, you should uh, try and get the job at Tooth and Nail. I was like, it's, you know, like asking someone that's never used a computer, you know, I knew how to draw, I knew all that kind of stuff, but it was like a completely foreign world. <clears throat> and so I sort of interned for like a couple months and just learned the ropes. Um, I had been on computers quite a bit growing up. My dad was a Mac guy. So we were really early, you know, um, on Mac pluses and SEs and stuff like that in the, in the early nineties. And I would go to Mac world conventions back before it was even a contender. I mean, my dad and I would go to San Francisco to these Mac world conventions. There'd be like a thousand people there. And it was really? the, like the biggest, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. It was tiny. Nice. I mean, you would see like certain vendors that are still around like Wacom and like some of these gaming companies that are still around, but it was like 1992. It was still really like the, the um, definitely like the, the small, small fry to the PC, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, So, you know, I dabbled with computers, but in terms of like working in Photoshop and Illustrator and at the time Cork Express, which is a layout program, I knew nothing. So it was a trial by fire, got a lot of good advice and, um, Worked a lot with my brother and with Greg, got my feet wet, and then ended up taking that job. Um, it was offered to me in earnest a couple of weeks into that. And then I was there for 13 years um, as art director, hired a bunch of different designers to work with me over the years, worked with um, all those bands, whether it was tooth and nail bands, solid state bands, BEC bands. Um, and then the work that I was doing there snowballed into other work you know, um, my brother was doing it simultaneously too. So the, between the two of us, it's like we were working on trust kill stuff and ferret stuff and roadrunner stuff. And then that snowballed into capital and universal and, um, you know, AM and Atlantic and one thing after the other. And, and so that it just kept going, kept going, kept going. These days, music isn't the bulk of what we do. I still do a, a considerable amount um, and I still really enjoy doing music packaging. My brother doesn't really do anything other than illustration anymore. Um, so he's he does children's books. He does postage stamps for the USPS. He does a lot of stuff for Target. Mm-hmm. So he's 
Foley, I mean, he did the Incredibles little golden book, you know, so he's, um, he's kind of living his dream. He's always wanted to sort of make illustration be his, the, the, the key, you know, mm-hmm. style for him. So he's taken that full on and I still do a number of album packages, but I'm also doing a lot of corporate branding and packaging and things like that. So, um, th- that is my everyday. And then the band is sort of, um, when I'm lucky enough to have the time for it, mm-hmm. whether that's demoing or recording or touring or whatever, I, it's still sort of feels like vacation or, or, you know, it feels like a hobby because I haven't done it to death, you know? Yeah. Uh, and we don't all live on top of each other. It's like everyone's in separate States. It's still cool to see everyone. We get together and everyone's stoked. So I think that's why we've lasted as long as we have is because we haven't sort of played the game of grueling over tour and we haven't, we haven't ever really been um, all that close to one another in terms of physically. So yeah, um, I think that's sort of helped us sustain 20 years and it still feels fresh and feels fun. You know, that's the win, man. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. There's so much to unpack there. That is such an <laughs> yeah, awesome. The... I, I love that though. Like it lays yeah. it all out. Like uh, just right off the bat though, like, doing the corporate stuff as an artist, do you have like ground rules where like, are they coming to you with exactly what they want? Or are you like, Hey, give me an idea and I'm going to come up with this. Like how rigid is it? Because that's something I've been curious about. I I worked for target for a number of years in between tours Mm -hmm. and I know how they are about things uh, being a certain way. And of course every corporation wants to be on brand with what they're doing. Sure. But as a creative person, do you approach those meetings like, hey, throw at me what you want and I'll create it? Or is it like, I need exact, or the, we want exact, exactly this, go draw it or <clears throat> go make it? I guess it depends. It, it depends massively. Um, it depends on who's, who's hiring you, mm-hmm. how familiar they are with your work. Um, if they, you know, if someone turned them on to you last week and they hire you, it's a completely different scenario than someone who's been following you for since, since they were in design school, Mm -hmm. which is, we have a lot of, you know, we've been doing this long enough now that we have, we're getting hired by a lot of people who followed us throughout high school and college. Um, and now all of a sudden they're art directing at Nike or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, um, if someone has a lot of that history with us, then there's just an inherent reverence that comes with that, where they're going to give us more trust give us more freedom. Um, that's obviously the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, someone that's less familiar with us, you know, that, that comes with its, its trials sometimes, but it also depends on the individual depends on the, the project. We get hired to do pretty, pretty highly artistic stuff because we're known for that. So we don't really like to get our hands into production work into, you know, um, we can be pretty selective about what we, what we take. So if it's not something that's highly creative for us, um, that's a pretty easy no. Um, but yeah, every project sort of reveals itself somewhere throughout the process, you know, like it could sound like, Oh, that's pretty cut and dry. I know how to do that. And then you get two, three weeks into it and you realize like, it's not really what you thought. I mean, again, that's a bad scenario, but Mm -hmm. it happened. Yeah. Um, but everything, everyone's different. You know, some are really, really chill. Um, some big companies that you would assume would be kind of difficult can be less difficult than 
even just some random individual friend, like friends that you have that you're working for, it can, can be more difficult and more, it's just, it's, it all depends on the, on the person. Um, the corporate stuff tends to be more revision heavy, more iterative. Um, you know, you are sort of, you're, you're having to tick a lot more boxes, you know, because you're, you're having to appease the person who hired you, the demographic, the, the brand, the branding of whatever the entity is, <clears throat> the tone of voice, et cetera, et cetera. You're like sort of dodging all of these things and trying to hit all these targets at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be a little bit, it's a lot, there's a lot more to think of usually than if someone gives you a totally like, if someone has some small business and it's like they make, you know, t-shirts or something, it's mm-hmm. like pretty blue skies for, for someone who knows exactly what they're doing. They have a small niche fan base or whatever. And it's like, that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. And those are fun because it's, you know, you kind of get to do whatever you want. And that's, I think what I think I like so much about doing music still is that most of the time, if someone comes to me for a music package, they're going to give me a, a pretty considerable amount of trust. Um, and I get to sort of be an artist most of the time with those things. Whereas with the corporate stuff, with the branding or, or packaging and things like that, it's there's a decent chance that it's going to be, you're going to feel like just a set of hands mm-hmm. at a certain point. You know? mm-hmm. um, not always, but there's, I think there's more likelihood of that than there is in doing album packaging, which is why I still, I still like it a lot. Sure. And I mean, you gotta, you gotta, be cognizant of the, you know, you have bills to pay and mortgage and stuff, that, you know, like you have to that's, take that's some another things. Bit, another part of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if someone comes to you and, and lays it out for you and it sounds like a nightmare, but then they tell you the budget's huge. It's like, you just gotta, you know, make that decision. Like, is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Is it worth it to go through something that you, that's going to be a pain um, in order to make a, a decent paycheck? Like, I mean, chances are, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you can offset that with some really creative work, because unfortunately the creative stuff and like, you know, most people know the music industry is not what it used to be. Um, so the budget's there. It's like, you got to love it. You got to love it to do it because it's not big budget stuff. Mm-hmm. So the big budget corporate stuff sort of makes up for it, but then it's, it's a uh, sort of opposite in the creative direction, you know? So when you get all of the things, when you get like really cool art director, who's really nice and really understands and gives you a lot of trust, the budget's big and it's super creative and you want to put it in your portfolio. Like that pretty much never happens. You can just kind of cancel one of those out like right (laughs) off the bat. Um, But that's every once in a while you'll get all, all of those things. And I'd say it's worth it if you get two of them, Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. So tell me, tell me this being someone who does music and, and art like you do and being such a creative person, I'm always interested in this stuff with people that are truly, creative like have to create like if Mm -hmm. you got dumped off on a desert island somewhere you would start creating something like you would just hang out on the beach right it would it's in you so like when you approach like a so you get a project like a hey we want you to do our our record our record layout or you sit down to write lyrics or music do you approach it the same way from a creative standpoint do you have like a, a like not a checklist, but like a process that you follow when you go with a blank canvas in either of those that you follow with both. Does that make sense? Like to where, yeah. like, how do you, how does your brain work that way? Like when you sit down at a table and you got a blank piece of paper for either lyrics or an album cover, what's your approach? Is it similar? 
No. Um, I'd say they're different. And I'd say that like, I, I have an approach for both of them, but it's also sort of nuanced in that it's not, it's not like a, it's not very rigid. I would say, um, I can, when I, when I sit down to do an album cover, for instance, that's always the first piece of the puzzle, you know, it, it solely depends on what the direction is. If, if the direction is like surrealistic photograph of a guy, like, you know, floating in the sky or whatever, my approach to that's going to be, well, I either have to go find some photography or have something shot. So I need to either reach out to photographers or, or search for some stock imagery or whatever it is. That's going to be my process there. But if it's like something that's more collagey, like the stuff I've done for August Burns Red or Stone Sour, Queen's Reich or whatever, some, it's like a style that I like working in. That's an entirely different thing. I have these stacks of you know, fifties and sixties time in life magazines. I'll just set those out, kind of formulate an idea in my head. Usually I'll have it cleared by the band before I, I dig in, but then I just go searching for like pieces to cut out. Um, so that's a whole different process. Um, and then if it's an illustrated thing, that's a different process. If it's like a typographic thing, there, there's sort of different processes depending on the direction. The I'd say where they overlap is like, you know, I do have sort of a, um, like just a muscle memory. Like I open up a Photoshop document and create a 12.5 inch by 12.5 inch canvas, put guidelines in the middle, crop marks, like all that kind of stuff just happens without even thinking. And that's uniform for everything. Um, so yeah, there are small, small little processes like that, that sort of carry over. But, um, when it comes to writing lyrics, the difference there is I need utter silence. I need to be alone. Um, I can't, you know, for the most part, I can't barely even have my daughter, like with headphones, listen, watching a show next to me. I, I kind of need total salt, like solitary, um, to really get into lyrics and driving is one of the best times for me to write lyrics. Cause you're, you know, you're kind of forced to just not, do anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, you can, you can pay attention to driving and just think I'm driving and being on a plane is kind of where I do a lot of writing. Um, that's a different endeavor just because it's like a purely artistic one. Like I don't have to think for two seconds what like anyone's going to think about this. And there is obviously a, in the back of my head, I'm, I'm trying to write things that are interesting that are, relevant that someone's going to um find some value in that's going to resonate with them on some level yes i'm thinking of those but they're all sort of back, that's all happening in the back of my mind um whereas in commercial art all the boxes that you're trying to tick are all really like in the front in the foreground and so i'm thinking like are they going to like this does it fit the genres you know whatever whatever those sort of questions are mm -hmm. Um, it's a different sort of, I'm appealing to a different audience, you know, um, when it's, when it's lyrics, it's like, I only have to please myself and I'm going to be my hardest critic too. So if I'm stoked on my lyrics, I don't have to think at all about, you know, how it's going to come across. Um, and same with the music. It's like, if I, if I love something that I wrote, even if it feels a little bit left field for Demon Hunter, 
if I'm stoked on it, I'm going to put it out. Mm-hmm. And so there's never a second thought about like, yeah, is it, you know, but what are they going to think? You know, if in that world, it's like, that's when I get to be a true artist, which is again, why for someone who gets to have their cake and eat it too, with, with both careers, you know, the reason why the music is still so important to me and it sort of outweighs at least like a, from an artistic importance, it outweighs the design stuff is because it is like, it is a purely like um, fine art sort of thing for me where no one really gets to speak into it. I do, I do whatever I want. Um, and it's a pure artistic expression. Whereas everything I do for design, unless it's for myself is commercial art. It does need to, you know, at the end of the day, it needs to get approved by someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can mean that I like the final product or I don't, you know, it's always up in the air. It's always going to be up in there until it's done. So those are, that's the difference for me in terms of like how I approach it is there's an ultimate freedom in doing music that I don't necessarily get with design unless it's again for myself. Um, so mentally that's where I'm at. And then musically, it's just. What's going on, guys? This is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I want to tell you about our newest sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid distributes your music across all online platforms. They are an amazing company. I've enjoyed working with them the last few weeks, and they're going to be with us for a while, and I really, really appreciate that. I love working with great companies, and DistroKid is one of them. Uh, They have an awesome thing they're doing right now called Splits. Now, if you're working as most people are online, doing collaborations with people from all over the country, all over the world, as easy as that is with the internet, uh, you want to get those people paid when you put that music online. And splits can do that. You can add an unlimited amount of collaborators to any track. You can change the splits at any time. You can add or remove collaborators at any time. You can see previous splits. And all your collaborators are going to have to do is sign up for a DistroKid membership, a DistroKid account, so they can get paid. And as always, DistroKid never takes a cut. You and your collaborators get 100% of the earnings in total. A couple other awesome things that they do is they set up an official artist YouTube channel. Uh, You can use Spotify Canvas, synced lyrics, promo card to promote your release on social media, a mini video for your socials as well. There's just so many awesome things about using DistroKid. And like I said, I don't advertise things I don't use, haven't signed up for. I have signed up for this. It is a breeze, literally a breeze. And you can get going right away. So definitely check out DistroKid. And I want to give you 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. That is distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for Peer Pleasure Podcast. Once again, that is 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP. Go check out DistroKid right now. distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for 30% off. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. 
So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one hit thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Hey guys, this is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I wanted to tell you about Premium Pleasure, our premium subscription service that's available now. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. There's three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier one is $5 a month. It gets you the ad-free experience. Tier two gets you access to the Peer Pleasure Passcast. It gets you access to the videos of the interviews. It gets you merch discounts. Tier three is $20 a month. That gets you all of that. It gets you the Passcast, gets you the video footage, discounts on merchandise, and monthly Zoom calls well, with myself and other guests. We're going to have all kinds of stuff in there for you. There's all kinds of stuff in there for you now. There is, uh, I believe, 30 to 40 videos of these interviews. There is uh, multiple episodes of the Passcast. The Passcast is a podcast that I'd started separately that is me and another podcaster or me and a guest. Uh, discussing a deep dive into their favorite episode of Peer Pleasure. Um, so there's a bunch of those on there. So so-and-so and I would talk about the Chino Moreno episode. So-and-so and I would talk about uh, the Yvette Young episodes. And we would do a deep dive and tell where they came from, how we got the guest, stories of uh, that weren't discussed on the podcast or maybe weren't in there. Um, it's just another glimpse behind the curtain. So that's the big deal with this premium service is giving you a glimpse behind the curtain of how the podcast is made, gives you access to things I'm doing and things that we're doing with the show, um, gives you, you know, ad free stuff. It gives you just all kinds of, of things that we could throw in there to help make it a valuable part of your month. Cause I put everything out there on this show. I put everything I have into this show. Um, so being able to give you guys that little bit of extra is a big deal to me and having your support is a big deal to me because if we don't support our artists and creatives, we're not going to have any left. So I appreciate it. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. Go sign up today and get some of this premium pleasure. I am accumulating song ideas all the time, just from my voice recorder on my phone. I have hundreds of them. Um, and I've been doing that for years and years. And so that just happens when it happens, it'll strike me anywhere, you know? Um, and so I have all these little voice recordings. There are all these little ideas, these little sparks, uh, these little like song starters. And sometimes they're like a three minute recording where it's like, you know, I have most of a song here. Sometimes it's like a 22nd recording. It's just a riff or whatever. It's just a, a little melody. Um, and so I accumulate these throughout the year, you know, or, couple of years between records. And then when it gets time to, to start demoing, I go through and pick the ones that I like. And those, I don't really have the time to sit down with a guitar and like a blank slate in my head. Um, I'm just too busy for that. Yeah. So when I sit down with a guitar and I sit down and I have garage band open or whatever, it's like, I have to be 
I have to be like 25, 30% there already. I have to know kind of where I'm aiming. Um, and so that's, I have enough of this stuff accumulated to where that's never a problem. I've always got something to work on. If that idea doesn't work, I can jump onto the next one. Um, but that, that allows me to do it really effectively and, and not really waste any time. Um, and I have more ideas than I could ever know what to do with. So, so there's never a shortage. Dude, there's, there's some really, some stuff that really stood out to me there that, that the fact that to create lyrically, you need silence and like solitude for something that's then going to be put out over massive speakers loud and like in the face is such a crazy, like just like, like juxtaposition there where like what it requires to then happen is nothing, none of that, no audible sound. And like, that's really interesting. I've never had anyone say that before on this show, like 200 episodes, 200 some episodes in, that does never come up that like, like the solitude thing. Have you, so I've got a couple of things. Like, have you ever tried those isolation tanks before? Those flotation? I have not, but I've always wanted to. There's a place here. There's a place up in Seattle. I think it's called Soak. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I've, I've almost like, you know, there have been a couple times where I've almost done it and just uh, just timing didn't work out or whatever, but I would, I would love to try it. Okay, because that'd be an interesting spot to, to put you in and see what yeah, comes yeah. out. You know what I mean? Because totally. you couldn't write in there, but you could come up with it in your head. For sure, yeah. My worry is that I'm going to start getting paranoid of hearing my own heartbeat and my own breath because right. you can't shut can. everything off. You yeah, I've heard it can drive you crazy. Yeah, so or that you go into like a dream sleep state. I don't know, but I've mm-hmm. not done it myself, but I'm fascinated by the idea, and I yeah. will absolutely try to do it when all this stuff's over and you can do that again. But uh, I like that that the way that goes, where you got to have silence to then create what's then going to be loud in any degree. Yeah, Um the other thing you were talking about doing the collage stuff and how you have a, a pile of things. Do you, do you have, or I guess you have them, but have you ever used the stuff from your grandfather, any of those illustrations from those, those manuals and books that you do know that he did? Have you ever used those yeah. in your, in like a commercial or like a album setting? So n- most of the stuff that he did was sort of accounted for um, okay. in terms of like, Copyright. like ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of illustrations that he did just for fun um, that technically we could, we could sort of formulate into something. The only time we've ever done that, that I am aware of or that I can remember is we did a Queens of the Stone Age show poster that has one of his illustrations on it. Um, and it's like a, it's like a biker dude with like a raked out chopper and like a girl with them. It's a real fifties looking illustration. Um, but he did the line art and then we just, you know, did the typography and kind of colored it. Dude, that is um, so rad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's the only thing that comes to mind that I can think of that where we kind of collaborated. Yeah. He passed in, uh, he passed in 1995. Oh. Sorry. So it was before my brother and I had really, you know, you know, we were still teenagers at the time. So, yeah, but you got to bring it back and put it out there in the world yeah. as something. Fresh. And my grandma got to, before she passed, she got to see a lot of it. You know, we ended up with his library and a lot of his, you know, supplies and, and his drawing desk and like all that stuff. So, um, that's my, yeah, my grandma got to see us like 
in the throes of a career. So that was cool. Do you feel that energy when you use that stuff or work at that desk? Or like, do you feel an energy there? Like, like an inspiration or like a, a different, I mean, I, I really, I not to get too mystical, but I, I mean, people, people, uh, imprint on things. I feel books, sure. tables, chairs, like things they put their work into, you know, their mm -hmm. energy is still there. Do you find that in things that you use that someone else did or something like your grandfather's stuff? It's been a while since I've used any of his stuff. Most of it is pretty um, archaic in terms of like what I do versus mm -hmm. what he used to do. Um, I have used his paintbrushes and stuff like that, but it's it's pretty seldom that I ever do. His drawing table is like really small and old and rickety, and so it's like not very ideal. Um, but yeah, there's definitely like a there's definitely inspiration there, um, and there's something. There's something to it if you allow it, if you allow yourself to be conscious of it. I think it's easy to just kind of use things without thinking about that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but if you allow yourself to be conscious of that sort of the history, um, then yeah, it can be like hugely inspirational. But, you know, I haven't, like I said, I haven't really used a lot of his stuff. It's He was just a, a tried and true pen, pen, pen and pencil and sometimes paintbrush guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, though I do some of that, it's pretty, it's pretty rare these days okay. that, I, that I actually get to do pen to paper. Yeah. That's something I was, I was just thinking about because it, it really does, especially on guitars and things like there are just a lot of things with yeah. wood, you know, like organic mm -hmm. materials that are then repurposed into something else right. can just transfer over into that. Do you, with your kids, do you, do you do the same thing that your folks did where they, you know, Christmas is, you know, pencils, you know, uh, art supplies, art classes, working with you. Like how old are your, are your children? I just have one daughter. Oh, you just have one. Okay. Almost six. Yeah. So she'll be six in about a week. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously I try to push her towards art mm -hmm. without being pushy about it. Um, she does enjoy drawing. She enjoys building Lego. There's, a, there's things that I'm stoked that she's into. Um, and then there's just typical stuff that's, you know, She's a six-year-old girl, so she likes Disney. You know, like there's all that stuff. But <laughs> it's like I'm not, I'm not going to poo-poo because I know how that kind of gets comes back in in your face. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to poo-poo any of that stuff. Um, but I see that as more more of a fleeting, just kind of like by virtue of her age and, and mm -hmm. classmates and things like that. Um, I'm hoping that the artistic stuff, whether it's drawing, music, which I I can start to see sort of um, a musical, I mean, her, her, she knows how to get on key if she really, if she really wants to, I can tell that when she's singing, um, she sort of knows what falsetto is without knowing what it is, you know, like there's a couple of things that like maybe a little advanced for her age in that way. And I, I hope that those things sort of continue to blossom, um, with drawing and stuff. That's obviously something I'll always be, um, super supportive of. I don't want to be overbearing about it. I don't want to be like the football dad about it. Um, I, I dream of a time when, you know, she's 14 or 15 and wants to go to like Comic-Con with dad like that. That will be a big win for me if, if that's kind of in the cards for her. Um, but if she ends up being into sports or whatever, like there's a, there's a likelihood of that, you know, mm -hmm. just doing something different than your parents. And that'll be absolutely fine with me. Um, but yeah, I would love for that to be, you know, passed along and 
And as, as long as she loved doing it, you know, I'm yeah. all for it. Are you into comic books? You know, I was kind of majorly when I was in like junior high and early high school. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I know enough, I know enough to be dangerous, but not like Downey, not like so many of my friends. Mm -hmm. um, you know, now it's sort of ubiquitous culture, right? Like with all the movies and stuff, but before yeah. everyone knew who like Daredevil was and all that stuff, like I had the, I had those comic books. Like I was a big Marvel guy, um, a little bit of image stuff when image was new, um, early spawn and max and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I had, you know, I have a, a stack probably that big now, you know, yeah. it's, it's dwindled <laughs> down to like nearly nothing. I have some old spawn stuff. I have some, I have Iceman number one. That's like the only, um, really old, cool thing that I have. I have some, some old Spider-Mans and stuff, but nothing that's worth a ton of money. Um, yeah. but it's a world that like, to me, it sort of, um, it embodies like a much bigger than what it is. You know, it, it's just the comic book world. And that's kind of more obvious, like I was saying today with the movies and everything, but mm -hmm. I think it's sort of the, the linchpin for a lot of culturally relevant things at large these days, you know, just, the way that a lot of TV shows and, and stories are told these days is sort of through the lens of that kind of comic book thing, whether they know it or not. Um, and then just an art, from an artistic standpoint, like I have a lot of respect for those guys and, and the people who used to do that stuff because it was a, not easy to do a lot of that stuff, the perspective stuff, especially um, drawing human hands and stuff like all the, all the things that are really difficult mm -hmm. comic book artists have to master. Um, and so I've always had like a super appreciation for all that stuff and like a reverence for those dudes. Dude, absolutely. I remember buying the, the, the spawn stuff, the max stuff, like all the back at the comic book shop back in Alaska, like I'd spend my allowance there and I never got into collecting. I would just buy them and read them and yeah. they probably went, I don't know, a garage sale or whatever. I didn't really keep any of them. Uh, but it always fascinated me that, that side of art. I've never been, artistic in the way of like visual art or or creating that way I, I took art classes and stuff in school and I was never great at it I was more into like creating sonically and and stuff with music yeah. um but I really wish I put in more time just to give it a shot because there's just so much right. amazing stuff being created you know yourself included like your portfolio is insane but there's just so much out there. It's, it's incredible and staggering how much great stuff is there. You know, it's, it's wild. Right, right. And, uh, I just, I wish I would have given it a better shot. <laughs> Let's see if I yeah. can come up with anything that way, you know, but, uh, yeah, music was the, was the way. And now it's yeah. podcasting, doing this thing where, uh, trying to connect on a, on a different level through music, mm -hmm. of course, um, you oh, know, yeah. which brings us together. But, um, I'm I'm really curious on where the idea came to make this really stripped down record you guys just put out because it's yeah. really cool. Like watching the videos okay. from it and stuff, like the the whole aesthetic. I can't say I'm surprised that it's awesome, but is done in such a cool way. Like where did that where did that idea come from? You know, we've been dabbling with the idea of doing something acoustic, you know, some version of like an acoustic record, um, for a long time, really, you know, from the very first record, almost 20 years ago, 20 years ago, next year, you know, we've always had these sort of somber songs, these like ballady songs, there's at least two, if not three or four per, per record. So now we're 10 records deep and we have 
we have a lot of those mm-hmm. songs to sort of work with. And um, so it's been on our radar for a long time. It was just sort of a matter of like, when is when's going to be a good time to do it? Because doing a collection of any type is sort of, I think it needs to happen at a certain point in your career where um, you're comfortable. I wouldn't say like putting a, putting your, a, a, you know, a pin in something. Cause that's definitely not the case for us, but it's there. It can almost have that sort of, that sort of thing, whether you want it to or not, it, like it can, it can have the end of an era sort of vibe to it if you want, whether or not you want it. So though it's not the case for us, I wanted to make sure that we had a, a considerable number of records under our belt before we really did that. That would allow us not only to, um, be selective about the songs that we chose because now we have, you know, at least 20 some odd ballads. Um, so we could kind of be selective and it gives us time to kind of feel out which ones are the fan favorites, which ones are our favorites. Um, let them live a little bit first, you know? Um, and so it just felt like a good time for it, especially after 2019, we had done a couple of, tours where we did an evening with sort of format where it was just us and we came out and did a full acoustic set and then like a little intermission came out and did a full heavy set and um it was a pretty big undertaking especially for a band that doesn't tour very often you know every time we tour it's like we haven't played these songs in a year plus Mm -hmm. so for us it's like we got to brush up every time we go out um so taking on two full sets was a pretty big deal and i was pretty stoked and and surprised uh, at how kind of well I felt like we did. And I think everyone in the band sort of felt the same way. The acoustic stuff in particular was really fun and like different and really resonated with people. Um, And so that it was just sort of a special, it just felt really good. Um, We had done, you know, we've done some version of an acoustic thing here and there. We've done little in stores um, or, little one-off dates that are acoustic, but usually it'd be just me and Patrick or me and the two guitar players at the most. So it was always sort of really stripped down and it was always kind of like a bit of an afterthought. Um, we weren't putting a ton of time and attention into the the songs themselves and, and, and sitting with them and considering like, what's the best way to do this. So we knew that once we wanted to do this in earnest and do it on, on a real record, um, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to essentially take these songs, some of which are fan favorites that we've played, you know, hundreds of times, others that we have not played really at all, um, sort of a, a blend of the of the two, and then sit with each one and really talk about it, think about it. Like, what's the best way to do this song where we don't, one, like alienate fans, we don't make them, you know, these are, most of these are big time songs for us in terms of, you know, if you look at the Spotify or iTunes stats, it's like, these are the songs that people listen to the most. So we don't want to mess with the formula too much because, you know, I wouldn't want someone doing that with my favorite songs. Mm -hmm. So how do you tweak them, change them just enough to be um, kind of welcome to welcome changes, changes that are still interesting and cool. and, And, you know, sounds like something you haven't heard a dozen times before from a song that you have heard a dozen times before. Um, and then how do you retain the essence of that song in a way that's not going to like bastardize it, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
that was really the goal. And it was a lot of fun to sit and, and do that in the studio. We went to a studio outside of Atlanta in June and we were there for about five days and just sat with these songs. We had a, a pianist, which was the first time we'd ever, you know, played with a, a full-time pianist and a really, really good one at that. Um, and she learned the stuff better than we knew it. I mean, it was just, she knew it six, seven different ways, you know, every song, um, she could transpose it into a different key, like within seconds. Mm -hmm. So that, that caliber of musician was just like super spoiled, um, to have someone like her be there with us. But it was actually the first time we had ever recorded live as a band in the studio. Um, everything's always like, it, like it usually is everything's sort of amalgamated together through, you know, these sort of remote or disparate sessions. And so like, there'll be a drum, you'll do a drum session here and then you'll go do final guitars here and then you'll do vo vocals here. And, you know, there, there's a little bit of overlap, but never like this. Like we all sat together and played the songs together to get a vibe of us playing them together. Um, and there were definitely overdubs. All the strings that you hear are obviously done after the fact. Mm -hmm. Um, it's actually the same guy playing all the stringed instruments. So it would have to be that way. Um, he, he's phenomenal, but you know, he, he sets up his mics in a room and then he sits in different chairs. So it sounds like there's, you know, seven, eight people playing the, the stuff. Um, so that, that kind of stuff was done after the fact, the vocals were retracked, the, um, all the backing vocals, all that kind of stuff. But in order to get that essence, the vibe of like playing together, mm -hmm which was really important for this because it's a feeling record, you know, more than anything else. It's, it has to have a vibe. We sat and did it all together. And so all the drums that you hear, all the guitars and all the piano that you hear in there is all, is all being done together. And that was an important thing for us to do. Um, and so what we didn't want to do is do these songs exactly how we've done them in the past. And what we also didn't want to do is, um, just strip them down for the sake of stripping them down. Um, I feel like that's something that, that that's pretty well-tread territory for us. You know, we've, we've, like I said, done these little end stores and stuff. So how could we, in essence, do an acoustic record that's still really lush, really full, really layered um, and not lacking. I mean, I would say most of these tracks have about the same amount of tracks and pro tools as the original version. It's just different instruments. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was really important to us too. Like we didn't want it to just to sound like an afterthought record at all. Um, and, and because we put that sort of time and attention and effort into it, I feel like we are all really proud of it. For me, having written these songs, I feel like really proud to have written them. There's like a new, um, revived sense of pride in them. Um, I feel like a lot of the times I'm like, well, this, this song really had legs beyond being like just a metal ballad. You know, it actually has legs as a song, 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 you know, mm -hmm. uh, which you can't say that about every, about every song, you know, sometimes songs just work in their, in their original format. And this, this was an awesome proving ground for us to say, Oh, I mean, these songs could be like, whatever. You know, mm -hmm. we were, we were working on some and it was, we would slow it down to a point where we'd be like, man, if we added a, a lap steel in this, it could be a, it could be a country song, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's cool to see them have these sort of, um, the potential to, to really kind of be, take on an entirely different life. And so that was a really cool thing for us. 
That's incredible, dude. Like the 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 amount of thought that went into it for one, the execution of it that was incredible. Like the the record has that vibe. It has that feel. Like it's it uh you know, like remember like the the MTV unplugged uh yeah. performances, like Allison Chains for for sure. Yep. Had that feel like that it just mm-hmm. felt different. Like my dad wasn't a fan of Allison Chains, but he had that record because yeah. it was awesome like and we'd sit and listen to it you know in the car that was that record in particular was a, a massive inspiration like throughout the recording of this mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and we wanted to obviously take it even a step further with the strings and this totally layered vocals and stuff like that but it was like that was that's one of those records that i feel like fans hardcore fans mm-hmm. of allison chains are likely to like that record just as much, if not more than the studio recordings of those songs. And so that's when you, when you're able to do that, that's pretty major. And that's what we were trying. That's kind of what we were trying to do this whole time is like, if we can do it the same sort of justice as some of those unplugs did to their songs. Mm-hmm. Like there's better versions on those unplugged re- releases, totally. you know, that I would yeah. prefer and seek out to listen to later. Uh, just a quick side note. I know you've done stuff with Allison Chains for for records and stuff, and being from Seattle, yeah. do you know the like Jerry and those guys? Jerry and Sean, yeah. Have yeah. they heard uh, this record? Um, no. Okay, I'd be curious <laughs> I, to hear the, their thoughts on it. Are, it. I wouldn't say that I I wouldn't want to to like do that. I'm trying to. I try to stay professional with stuff I like got that. You. I got and you. If I ever, if I feel like it's ever going to approach like the fanboy thing, I I just gotta steer clear, steer clear of it. They do know that I'm in a band. Okay. They do know. I don't think that they know that we've covered Alice in Chains in the past. I don't. I, I know Sean. I mean, I have Alice in Chains lyrics on my arm. Sean knows that I have that, so he knows I'm a major fan. Excellent. Um, and Jerry's Jerry does too they reference me being in a heavy metal band but i don't know if they i don't know if they know that we're anything north of a you know like a local yeah you know i, I don't know if they, if <laughs> they know band. that we have all these records and you know <laughs> we're liable to give them a run for their money like on first week sales yes <laughs> you know, like stuff like that. um i don't think that they i don't think that they know any any of that stuff i would love to Cause I have some songs that are heavily influenced by their stuff. Yeah. Like, I would love to sit with Jerry and be like, yeah, you know, you know, what do you think of this riff or whatever? But I'm just, that's never going to, it's never going to happen. It would have to be prompted by, by one of them. But yeah, yeah you know, I have a call with Jerry. And, <laughs> I have a call with Jerry in an hour actually. Oh, and, well, there uh, you go. Today I was just proofing Allison Chain's facelift 30th anniversary box set proofs that are yeah. in process right now. So yeah, I'm doing, I do a lot of stuff for the music. That's awesome. I, I, he's such a, he's such an amazing guitar. He, he did that solo on that last Deftones record. Uh, mm. It'd be so rad to have him guest on something. Just like, Hey, just here oh, it is. Yeah. Just play over it. And it's the creamiest, just delicious solo ever. Like it's just, and it doesn't fit the song either, but it does at the same time. Right. So I had right. to see he's if he, what he thought. can just skirt all theory yeah. and just do whatever he wants. And it's just going to work. Dude, it's amazing how pliable songs are like something that can be created by, you know, super rigid by people can then be reimagined and, and tweaked still. It's yeah. so cool. It's like this pliable thing. Uh, you know, exactly what you guys did being able to pull those in different directions. And 
right. just revisit so much stuff and and make something new and fresh. It's just a you you got a fucking awesome story, man. I'm I I'll just Thanks. say it like you you've you know growing up small town having fun adventures before the internet early max like i remember those in the oh, yeah. in the computer class we all had max the yeah. one like the seinfeld max that they make fish tanks out of now like yeah, totally. where you click and hold you had to hold and let go like i uh-huh. oh, i could never figure that out but you know then you know coming from your grandpa you know getting all the art supplies and the bug and then just and now you're in your own space you have acreage no neighbors mm-hmm. in Washington, not Southern Washington yeah. or Eastern Washington, but you know, uh, still, still King County, can, right? It's, I have all the skateboards I could ever, ever want. Yeah. I have all these decks now up on my, Oh my God. Like every board I couldn't afford or couldn't have when I was young. Dude, is <laughs> that like, a Fernandez? Is that a Fernandez vertigo on your wall? Yes, it is. Dude, those things, it's Fernandez right, you know went under. Is. Dude, of course I, I do. Those things had the sustainer system in them that were so badass. Like yeah. that sustainer pickup. I had artist endorsement from Fernandez for a little while. Um, so did we. So that was my first endorsement was in training for Utopia. We had a Fernandez endorsement. And that was the first endorsement. Such I a cool had. guitar. Oh. I've written every up, up until up until like a couple months ago mm-hmm. when I got this from a it's a custom guitar from a, a company called Halo. Whoa. So dude. they came to us and basically said like, we'll make you whatever you want from scratch. And so how do you say no to that? But yeah. Prior to that, every single Demon Hunter song that was demoed was demoed on that Fernandez. <laughs> Does it have the sustainer in it? I didn't play it in the studio, but every song was written on that thing. It, of songs that I did, which are, you know, 70, 70% of them. Yeah. Does it? Does that one have the sustainer in it? That little switch on I, that pickup that just lets it turns into an Ebo, pretty much. Oh no! I okay. wish it did, dude. They were selling just those. I remember, remember that being a thing. Yeah. yeah, that was like their claim to fame, and the fact that, that is a, that's a sweet idea. I think Billy Joe from Green Day's uh, Strat is a Fernandez, and then like John Feldman, all those guys played them. Uh, oh really? And then they got big into like the the metalcore scene too, like uh, with those Vertigos or not the Vertigos. The uh, uh, what's the other one? The one looks like a Les Paul. It's yeah, it's like in between the ESP and Les Paul. Uh, yeah, but that's rad. I that space is on, and I I have to ask you this too. I know people can't, or it's audio, but like that truck over there is that an RC? No, it's a Lego. <laughs> it is Lego. Okay, dude, because yeah. I'm into the RC crawlers, and I was looking at that. I was like, dude, no way. <laughs> yeah, this is look at it's that. A Lego. Is that an FJ yeah, Cruiser? Yes, dude. Yeah. Like the old ones. That's excellent. It's crazy. It has a wench on it and everything. Like the, <laughs> the pistons move in the engine. It took me like three days to put together. That's rad. That is rad. I love that, dude. I was just, I was eyeballing that. I was like, that looks like a crawler back there. But I couldn't tell because of the screen, you know, the screen's so small yeah. on my end. So like, ah, uh, dude. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I collect a lot of things. And you've gotten to work with Lego, right? With art? Yeah, we have done a little bit. Um, we've done some stuff for comic-con for them um some exclusive packaging mm-hmm. um we have actually gone out there to speak um at their headquarters they have these little um speaking engagements where they'll have you know artists designers things like that come out and mm-hmm. uh, just annually and we got to do that once which was really cool 
Um, yeah, there's, there have been a couple of things that we've been able to do, which is really cool. Dude, that's awesome. Like I said, your story is fantastic. Like you can write a book on this stuff, like just the, the, the story. I mean, you've gotten to experience so many cool phases of your life. You're still doing it. You've turned, you've done it yourself. Like you've turned what you wanted to do into a, a financially viable career to then yeah. put you in the world where you want to be, put you in the house you want to be, put food on the table for your kid, like collect, be able to collect things. You mm-hmm. got a call with Jerry Cantrell in an hour. Like, you know, like <laughs> shit like that is, is, is you're a blessed man. And I, I, I definitely am. Dude, I love speaking to folks like you because it inspires me, you know, that, you know, you can do this stuff. You put in the work, you find what you're good at and just run with it and, and, and yep. don't look back. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's born out of want. You yeah. know, that's my biggest fear for kids these days is that the, the want is just waning because everything's at our finger fingertips these days. There's yep. no want Amazon and the internet, you know, has proven that want is just dead. You know, yeah. you can have, you don't need to want anymore because you can just have. So when I was growing up in a suburb and we were poor, it's like, all I wanted was skateboards and all I wanted was a guitar and to be in a mm-hmm. band and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's a driving force and it's like the, it's, it's the, the main sort of proponent of all this devotion that I've put into it over the years is just like, I still have that want. I still feel like that teenager. That's like, I gotta prove myself in some way, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, don't that's the ever, thing I always worry about with the new generation is just that the the generation that grew up with the internet. It's just uh Yeah. Yeah. Well, the only thing you can do is don't ever lose that. And hopefully yeah. that will translate, you know? Like I'm sure totally. your grandfather was saying the same thing about, you know, these kids these days, you know, but <laughs> his 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 stuff transferred to you. You're gonna sure. transfer yeah. to your kid. And it's gonna it's gonna be great. Like I think, and maybe it won't happen right away, but it'll come back around. Basic sure, yeah, human, so. basic human uh, needs, and regardless of what what's in front of you, that basic humanity, uh, and it, it, all that stuff is is just gonna ring true. I think. I think we'll be surprised when it spins back around uh, yeah. to see where we all end up. And and but, dude, I I just really appreciate you coming on the show and and telling your story and inspiring others. And just creating so much good stuff, man. Like I'm stoked to see this, but I'll, it doesn't matter when it comes, like I'll be stoked. But the fact that I found it this morning, cause I did not know about it. I immediately just hit cart, bought it right there. Like, because <laughs> awesome. I was like, I have to have this. This is awesome. So thanks, man, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show. And, and I'll do all the, in the intro stuff like that. I'll introduce, you cool. know, who you are. Cause I just start this thing when I press record. But, you know, who you are, the record out, like all that stuff will be in that part. I know it's confusing for some people because I don't start with like a script or like, okay, here we're going to talk about this. You know, some podcasts do that. that Not my way. But, uh, dude, thank you very much. And uh, uh, best of luck to you. And and you're welcome back on anytime. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right, my friend. Tell Jerry I said hi. (laughs) (laughs) See ya. (laughs) See ya, man. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ryan Clark from Demon Hunter. What an amazing dude. It was an awesome conversation. I had a blast and learned quite a bit about his process and, you know, what makes him tick. And people that make careers out of being artistic and creative, it's a scary thing. So I definitely like to hear where they came from, what happened, 
how they got to where they are, their big breaks, things like that, because that's a scary thing to do. Only rely on yourself without the safety net of a giant corporation or something, you know, established with insurance and all that stuff. So especially with a family. So cheers to Ryan and uh, shout out to Ryan Downey. Their manager is a good buddy of mine from the podcast world, and it's, it's awesome being able to work with one of his bands. Um, he's a fantastic dude, and check out his podcast if you haven't already. Um, he actually did an episode of Peer Pleasure, and, and it was a fantastic. We went all over the place, just as we always do, but check that one out if you haven't yet. And big thanks to Ryan Clark for coming on. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's been just an awesome ride, guys. we got so much more coming to you, uh, so much more already recorded. You know, you can find it all in the premium. Anything I've done up to this day is in the premium as far as video footage goes. So there's like, I think there's like eight or nine unreleased interviews that will come out eventually here as they come through the queue. But you can get them now at the premium at peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm. And don't forget to join the Facebook group, uh, the Peer Pleasure Podcast Inner Circle. And uh, yeah, just keep sharing the show. Rate, review, and subscribe. It's just growing and growing, and it's just every week because of you guys, and it's so fantastic, and I love doing what I'm doing, uh, and it just fires me up. So thank you again. I love each and every one of you so much, and for all your support, thank you, thank you, thank you. We've got another awesome episode coming up next week, maybe two. We'll see. I'm trying to get them all out there as soon as I can because people are enjoying them and eating them up. Uh, I want to keep providing that. So a lot coming up, a lot of big things coming. We're approaching the five-year anniversary here at the end of the summer in October. And, uh, man, five years. It's kind of like an apprenticeship program. Almost done. And we'll be pro. But, uh, anyways, I'm going to get out of here, guys. I got a lot to do. Uh, but thank you. Enjoy the rest of your week. And, as always, we'll see you on the radio. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.